Live from New York City, it's the Gary Null Show. And now, your host, Gary Null. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Null, and this is Talkback, a program that has been on the air for over 35 years. And for 30 of those years, on Sunday evening, and uh, we took a lot of calls, thousands and thousands of calls. Also, we would have people send in letters or emails. And Dr. Martin Feldman co-hosted that program for a long time. Well, he has unfortunately passed uh, a year and a half ago. And so I've taken about a five-year break before then because Marty just said he was too tired to do it. But I thought, think of all the questions people have, statements, thoughts, insights, provocative, uh, provocative notions that we should hear. Let me remind those people who have not listened for a while or never listened at all. The whole point of talk back is not to rant and rave, not to condemn, not to attack, but rather to give reasoned insights that can empower us. It can be on any topic that's important in life. And what I have is a number. Write this number down, please, so that you can call it. And uh, 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. And that way you can think about what's important in your life. Now, if there's a reasonable opportunity for you to find what you're looking for in any of the many reference books or documentaries I've produced, over 100 documentaries, over 100 books, including my newest one, the, the huge new book, A Healthy Woman, Healthy Life, a woman's book for healing, 1,100 pages, then use that. Because otherwise, what would happen is the whole show would be a, you know, a show of disease, suffering, and, and protocols. Instead, think of the issues that you're not getting insight, that you cannot reasonably find an answer. Those are the ones I'd like to address. Or in all the different topics that I deal with on a regular basis, if it is provoke some stimulating inner dialogue and you'd like to share that with us, love to hear from you. Because I'm one of those people who believe that when we listen, we learn. If you just listened earlier to the Progressive Commentary Hour, you saw that my guest at one point spoke for 20 minutes uninterrupted because they had something to say. After all, I have not been to Syria. They have. I've studied, but there's no studying that it prepares you for what you see on the ground. And I wanted to hear what their experiences were, their insights. So I believe that we learn from listening. We learn from sharing our our thoughts, and we learn from asking the right questions. So that's our program. This is our first one back in five years. And if uh, I see that the numbers are there and people are enjoying it and appreciating and benefiting from it, then I'll continue. So our number again to call in, because there are no guests. I'm not doing commentaries. I do commentaries on my noon show, Monday to Friday, Eastern Standard Time. Five days a week, I do commentaries. And today I did an original, in-depth, white paper investigative report on challenging those who have attacked those of us in the field for our alternative ideas to see are their ideas supported by good science. 
It took almost six months of research to do that. So this is different. This is more relaxed, laid back, informal. So please feel free now to call in our number, 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Now, uh, we also have Luann Panessi. And Luann Panessi is a holistic nurse who's made major transformations in her life. And she's in the middle of a trans, uh, transformation right now. She and her partner, Peter, are just entered a, a new state tonight, closed up shop in New York after all these years of living up here, uh, running along a Long Island Jewish Hospital's nursing division for 18 years as administrative, administrator of that program, having a very successful practice in holistic nursing, uh, being down the Tri-State Healing Center, and now she's ready for the next step in her journey. And so that's exciting. That's, uh, that's always kind of a, an adrenaline rush when you're doing something completely new. And many, many people have emailed Luann, and knowing over the last several weeks I'd be doing this program. So I'm going to combine what Luann is going to share with us, plus calls that are coming in. So, Luann, nice to have you with us. Hi, Gary. Yes, happy to be here with you. Even though I'm not there, <laughs> I'm here. So, yeah, we got a lot of emails that came in and some very interesting ones. The, the very first one is uh, people have heard you talk about this whole concept of your age. And people are having a hard time wrapping their heads around how do we know our true age? Is it just how many times we've been around the sun and then we pull that a year? How do we actually tell how old we are? Okay, this brings me back to when I was growing up, I was always observing things. I was that kind of quirky kid that loved science, loved figuring out things. My mind always gravitated towards looking at problem solving. And I looked at people, and I never saw anyone who was older, let's say after high school or college, who looked younger or got younger. They were always older. And there was a ritual that you would go through. Uh, you might, if you were an athlete or you had been in sports, you might continue to do that which was acceptable, like uh, softball in the summer was acceptable. But no longer would you see people out there doing basketball because that was for younger kids. You were allowed to believe you could do anything and be anything until you graduated from high school. Until that time, those who rode the yellow buses, meaning the country people coming in from the country, that we would sit with in class every day, that would be on our football team, that would win the games for us frequently, we also allowed them to believe they could do anything and be anyone. But we knew that wasn't true. And you could kind of be eccentric, you could be stupid if you wanted, and you were forgiven for it until you graduated from high school. It's like, it's like the invasion of the body snatchers. You go to bed one night, someone puts a pod in the closet, you wake up the next day, and you look the same, but you're not. Something's changed. And what changed was the tolerance of what you were allowed to do in your developing years versus what you were supposed to in your mature years. And we were considered mature by 18, uh, where I came from the South. My family hails from the early 1800s from North Carolina and Kentucky. 
So I'm from True South, and uh, and for people who've never been in the, in the True South and been in that culture, there's some very positive, very negative things, uh, and I tried to accept the positive and, and reject or challenge the negative. But the idea was you couldn't change, so it was bred into us constantly that what you were is what you were, and if if your father was a stable person or your mother then you were supposed to emulate that. You weren't supposed to change. And so, well, how can you change in a community that doesn't allow you to change? Well, unless you're a dynamic energy or creative assertive energy, you don't because you don't fit in. And fitting in is absolutely important because they take very careful attention to who they allow trust to be shared with. So keeping that in mind, when I saw my aunts getting overweight or they were diabetic, or the, the, the people would um, have high blood pressure. It was never that they could prevent this. Rather, it was which drugs you're taking and how it's controlling it. And so everything was inevitable. There was a fatalism that uh, if you were able to look, reach 60, good for you, but you were just uh, you were a fortunate person and you had to take it easy. Don't exercise, you know, don't be expected to do a whole lot. Now we know everything we were told was wrong. Everyone smoked. Everyone drank. Everyone ate a bad diet. We didn't have fresh fruits and vegetables except rarely, and that was mainly in season when someone would bring by some cherries or blackberries. Everything was out of a can. It was sugared. Even the vegetables, like the stream beans, were in a can with lots of salt. And... The, that was the bad part of it. The good part of it was family was important. That's very important. Uh, honoring basic principles of life, that was important. Uh, developing character, especially through athleticism and the sports. And, uh, and then the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, Cub Scouts, that was important. And respecting the people in your society, all that was a part of it. So by the time I got to New York, and I started to see people living a completely different lifestyle than what I had grown up with and having a different concept on, on life, health, aging, uh, I said, wow, I didn't know the full story. I only had one piece of the puzzle. Now, one of the problems of life is how many pieces of the puzzle do you have that you're making your choices from? And that's why sometimes people, we, we think they're dumb. They're not really dumb. They're, they just don't have the insight and, and the awareness from experience and, and conscious observation that they're limited. And what we find is most often is how limited is a person. Now, your physician could graduate from Harvard Law School, could be board certified in oncology. But if all they're going to do is follow the principles exactly of their conditioning, who exactly are they going to heal they will be rewarded and accept that reward for seeing the vast majority of their cancer patients die and all their terminal patients die. At no point will there be this irony. What if I'm doing the wrong thing? And it was that in mind that I once took a study at the Institute of Applied Biology on proteins and the study showed that all vegetables and nuts and seeds and legumes have all eight essential amino acids. Essential means your body does not produce it. And therefore, you have to get it from outside. We were told growing up, and our parents believed, 
and all home economics classes were taught, and all textbooks taught, you must have animal proteins in order to have your complete amino acids. And it was wrong. So the entire American scientific establishment, the entire medical establishment, scientific establishment, nursing establishment, dietetic establishment were all wrong. Now, what is the likelihood that anyone is going to accept that they're wrong? And even if someone did accept they're wrong, what is the probability that they could change anything? Well, it was zero. But when I made my presentation to the 16 department heads, uh, and they were mainly in oncology and drug research, they all rejected it. And so the director of the institute said, Gary, you've tried to make your point by proving that you're right, that you do not need an animal-based diet to get your nutrition. You can do it through a plant-based diet. Now disprove yourself. And it took me a while to wrap my mind around how do I disprove myself when I just spent two years proving something that should have been revolutionary, but it didn't change anything or anyone. And so I spent the next three months doing everything humanly possible to show that what I had come up with was wrong. I asked Dr. Berman, I asked other doctors to go through my methodology, to go through my procedures, and we tried everything possible to see if I was wrong. When I finally could not prove I was wrong, when I tried to disprove myself and couldn't, I went back and said, sir, I've done everything I can, and I can't prove I'm wrong. He said, good. That's real science. Now, try that today. Go to a reporter for the New York Times and say, you've been giving misinformation about um, Syria. You gave misinformation about Libya. You gave misinformation with Judith Miller banging the drums for war about invading Iraq with weapons of mass destruction. You gave misinformation on Vietnam until... Danny Sheehan gave you the approval to publish the Pentagon Papers. You were wrong on all these major issues. You were wrong about the Contras. You were wrong. You were wrong about Gary Webb when he said that the the uh, CIA was involved in drugs coming into Southeast Los Angeles. You were wrong. You demonized him. Now go to a physician. Go to the American Board of Pediatrics and say, just. Try to disprove the idea that vaccines will create immunity better than breast milk or natural immunity. Disprove yourself. They're going to look at you like you're crazy, as if we can't disprove ourselves because what we believe in is absolute. So you're a true believer, absolutism, ultra-orthodoxy. You're not going to change anything. So now look at every institution that we have, every single institution. What you have are true believers at every level. Nobody in America wants to change. We want change. We don't want to be change. Ask a kid. Kid, you're a millennial. Do you believe that people should suffer and die on your behalf? Most will say no. No. Okay, they're, they're mining cobalt for a mineral that goes into your cell phone. It's go, is used in the lithium battery to make it last longer. Now, you got a choice. One million people are going to suffer under horrendous conditions in the Congo, for example, mining for minerals for computers and, and your cell phone included. Or you say, I don't need this technology. I'd rather help save a life. 
which would you choose? What do you think that answer would be? Saying how selfish we are as a society, self-absorbed. So on the one hand, we live in a paradox universe. We want to believe that what we're doing is right because we believe it. But when was the last time we tried to disprove what we believe? On the other hand, when it comes to aging, we don't want to get old. We don't want to die of heart attacks and strokes. But the very things that we're doing can contribute to them and do. So what if in every McDonald, every Burger King, every fast food franchise, when you go in, you see the animal, how it's been raised, factory farming, you see the deforestation of the rainforest, you see genetically engineered soybeans being planted instead of a rainforest to give to those cows, you see the cows being uh, treated badly, and then fully senescent beings knowing they're going to die, you see how the meat is processed, then you see the science behind that meat that says that they're heterocyclic amines in this meat, which are going to adversely affect your genes, and then you're eating all this in a way that is going to, to contribute to your own death. Now, if you saw all that at the counter before you ordered your meal, would you still order that meal? The answer is yes. The vast majority of people will. We have this fascination with our own personal manifest destiny that we believe in the exceptionalism of our choices to the degree that we're willing to deny the consequences of them. As a result, we take no responsibility for anything in life. Rare is the person who says, I screwed up, my fault, I made a mistake, I should learn from this mistake, but we won't do that. We'll blame others. We triangulate it to make other people feel bad about themselves. So they take the responsibility or are made to believe that they're responsible for our mistakes, our bad choices. So now you come down to the cell. The cell that says, you say I'm a chronological age. You say from conception till now or birth till now, I am 60 years old. What proof do you have I'm 60 years old? You have zero proof. There is no proof at all. No scientific proof, no biochemical proof, no genetic proof at all. But, Every single thing that you did determines your age. So with the soft drinks, with the sugar, with the caffeine, with the pesticides, with the meat, potato chips, french fries, with the fluoridated water, with the toxins in the water, with the lack of exercise, with the stress, how you dealt with stress appropriately or inappropriately, with all that you did, each one of the things you did, every single thing you did, every single thought you've had, Every single action you've had has either contributed to the cell living longer or the cell living shorter. Now, you can actually measure what are called telomeres. There's an enzyme telomerase that controls this, and these are the end caps of your chromosomes, much like the ends of a shoestring has a little cap to keep it from unraveling. Well, the telomeres help keep your DNA from unraveling. But everything I just mentioned causes it to unravel faster, shorten, so when you have a cola, you're shortening your life. So in effect, you're speeding up your aging. That means that you may be 60 chronologically, but because of how you've dealt with life, you're lonely, you're depressed, you're anxious, speed it up. You're overweight, speed it up. You live in a cramped, unhappy environment, unhealthy environment, speed it up. You're in a toxic relationship filled with drama, 
speed it up. You're eating bad foods, speed it up. You're not exercising, speed it up. Now, all these things speed up the DNA's aging. And we have different aging clocks in the body. So your heart, your brain, your musculature, your bones, your eyes, liver, kidneys, all of these have their own biological clocks. And none of them are the same. So if you've been drinking, your liver is going to be much older than any of the others and therefore closer to senescence or end of stage. But your brain will also be aged. I remember once, uh, six years ago, meeting a couple, very nice couple, and very waspy. And uh, I was talking to them about their lifestyle and some little memory loss. And I said, well, that is probably amyloid plaque that has built up. And you cannot drink any more alcohol. And they said, well, that's ridiculous. We, every day when we're golfing and we love golfing, we have a martini afterwards. And with all of our friends, you're not asking us to change how we socialize. I said, yes, I am. I said, uh, because it's your brain that's aging, not your friends. You don't know what's going on in their body. You better pay attention to yours. And when you lose your brain and when you no longer recognize your friends, Will you then say, maybe I should have listened? Because that's the issue. So every single organ in your body ages based upon what you have done to it, either positive or negative. Now let's look at the opposite of that. Let's say that you've been exercising, and you've been eating right, and you've been taking the supplements, and you're de-stressed, and you don't become a part of someone else's drama. Then you're not going to be 60. You may chronologically be 60. You may have had 60 birthdays, but biologically, at the cellular level, you're probably closer to 30. Today, uh, I was walking up Broadway, and a fella came out of his store. His name's Jeffrey. He owns an optometry store. He said, Gary, and we were just chatting, and he said, you know, he said, we're, we're two people who live a healthy life, and we just don't look like the other people on the Upper West Side who are our age. And I said, you're right. And I said, you know, Jeffrey, the problem is, for the vast majority of people, they will never appreciate the choices they've made and how wrong they are or right they were until they get there to their destination. So if your destination is a divorce, a bankruptcy, a dispossession, if you're... If you're if your destination is a heart attack or stroke, if then and only then do you recognize how many bad choices you've made, it's too late. Too late. So, and both of us know someone. He was a friend of mine, Ron Calusi. Ron is the reason I chose to go over and teach as a uh, adjunct professor of nutrition at Fairleigh Dixon University. I had other opportunities. And I like Ron. I like Ron and his wife. Very personable. He was walk in a room and light it up. And, but Ron had zero discipline. And you have no idea how many conversations I had with him about Ron. You can't keep doing this and not expect a bad outcome. And he'd laugh and say, well, I'm okay. I'm in great shape. And I said, you're not in great shape. And then a, a two weeks ago, he had a stroke. Then he was brain dead. Then they... They just, uh, he died. And when you see people like Martin Feldman and Nicholas Gonzalez and, and Gaynor and, 
and uh, so many other people you know, uh, that I have known and been either professional friends or close personal friends. A Virginia Reed, close personal friend, but she absolutely would not change her diet. And she got away with it until she didn't. So they had reached their biological clock. So they were not their chronological age. They were far older, that part of their body. So let us pay attention that every choice we make in life will have a consequence, either constructive or destructive, and they will all be cumulative. And one day you wake up and you're meeting the accumulation of the choices you've made. Does that answer your question, Luann? Sure does. That's a wake-up call. Hold on a second. Let's say Let's go out to Berkeley, California, and say hello to Harvey. Hi, Harvey, your turn. Hi, Gary. Well, thank you for the show. I appreciate it very much. I'd like to talk about what I call the genetic code of trust. And I believe there's something that, there's something that I call the genetic code of trust, which is when we're born, we're totally helpless, and we rely on our parents to protect us and shield us against the dangers of the world. And this genetic code of trust is extremely important to us, and pretty much determines what our future reference to the world as adults will be. And uh, there's a good chance that if our parents did a good job in sheltering and nurturing us in the early stages of our life, not that it's easy because kids challenge their parents, that uh, there's a good chance that we'll grow up as decent people ready to meet life's challenges and have relatively successful relationships with our friends and families and workers. But on the other hand, if as a youth we're both mentally and physically abused by those who are supposed to protect us when we are most vulnerable, life becomes treacherous. Uh, it's a road fraught with psychological problems and mistrustful relationships. It turns out that a lot of people who are addicted to hard drugs uh, were seriously abused as children, and abuse can mean both physical and mental, and uh, a lot of them spend their life seeking psychiatric and, psych you know, and, and psychology uh, seeking the help of psychologists and, psychi and psychiatrists and usually end up a lot on uh, psychiatric drugs. And a lawyer I know told me that a lot of people who were abused end up in jail. A lot of the people who he knows that went to jail were abused as youth. And, uh, and they say that people who are abused go on to abuse others. And most probably, you know, they'll join the armed forces, you know, travel the world to kill people. I don't know. Um, it's just, it's just a, trend, a, a terrible thing. And I also believe there's something I call the political code of trust. And when our politicians run for office, they promise us they'll protect us and our families and keep us safe and secure if, elected, if we elect them to office. But once in office, they put the political code of trust aside and uh, the, electric, the electric are ba abandoned and abused. Uh, for political favors and corporate awards. And I believe that Trump, he, uh, I bet you he was a victim of, of parental abuse. Maybe his parents weren't around. I don't know what it was, but he certainly acts like an abused person. So I think, once again, that we really have to pay attention to the genetic code of trust because how, how you know, when, we, when, we, when we're kids, we're sort of in a loose state, and then once it solidifies like cement, once our personality solidifies, it can make the difference between a happy life and a fulfilling life or a miserable life. You've made several important insights there. Some I would like to address. First, Harvey, do you believe that it's appropriate or accurate 
to suggest that everyone joining the military is doing so to go out and kill someone. <laughs> well, I think it it really is. It you know I you, I wonder about that because you know I know three people who who were parents and they were very angry. I know them and each of them independently their sons uh, went into the army and they didn't understand why. Uh, and they were like upwardly mobile people, educated, and yet, you know, one was a lawyer, and he thought his son would seek his profession, and yet he went into the armed services. Uh, he couldn't understand why he would do that, and uh, and another guy, too, was very sort of angry guy. His his son went into the armed service, and these weren't necessarily poor people either, and so I started thinking, well, maybe abused people, you know, they want to kill everybody. They want to get back. Okay. They want to so Harvey, okay, Harvey, that was a, okay, that's making a really serious generalization. Yes, it is. I, would, I agree with you. I, I would suggest that first we not make any statements about why people go into a particular profession, because we don't know. I interviewed over 1,100 veterans who'd returned from Iraq and Afghanistan for my three films, uh, friendly Fire, Killing Our Own, Gulf War Syndrome, as well as uh, American Veterans Forgotten and Betrayed. And I think the last one was probably, the, for me, the most revealing because I, I didn't know these veterans existed down in Florida. And it was over in Titusville. I got a call from a vet who said, can you help these people? And I said, well, how many of them are there? He didn't know. How, what do they need help from? Well, I hear they're homeless. So when I started that journey, I got my cameraman, went over there, and we had someone who knew the area, who lived there, Titusville. And uh, I said, do you know where there might be some homeless vets? And this person called back and said, yeah, I heard there's some. So we, we recon reconnoitered. We went into the woods and about 200 yards into the woods, or less, came across a little pup tent. Now, when I say a little pup tent, this was the kind of pup tent that when you're in small towns, as I was, and you would put a pup tent out in your backyard at night, and, uh, and, and it was fun. Uh, but this is not, now you're an adult. You're six foot three, and you're in a little tiny kid's pup tent. So half the body was out, the legs down were out, and the top part was in with a little uh, mosquito curtain. You could imagine what the mosquitoes were doing and insects to the bottom part of the torso. Anyhow, it was 10 o'clock in the morning. And this guy, uh, I, he was awake. And he had, uh, what I noticed was he had his clothes neatly folded in little piles. And he had three cans of beans that were uh, set beside his tent. And he had on a T-shirt, but I saw there were some dried blood stains. I said, you, you injured yourself? He's, yep. He said, I didn't injure myself. He said, I have two heart stents. I said, when did you get those in? He said, two weeks ago. So I said, uh, well, could I take a look? So he pulled up his shirt, T-shirt, and I said, this is, looks very septic. I said, you need some antibiotics. And he opened up his pocket and took out a crumpled piece of paper, and he handed it to me, and I opened it up, and it was, it was a prescription for antibiotics. And he, I said, well, where's the antibiotics? He said, I, I couldn't afford them. 
I said, wouldn't the VA help you? He said, well, they, I tried, but they, the VA said it wasn't um, militarily related, so they're not going to help me. And I don't have any money. I only have $3. So I thought, wow, now that's the first guy I met. Needless to say, unlike the people in, from CNN that go down and show you the, the seagulls dying in the Gulf because they've got oil on them, I'm that kind of guy that runs in there and grabs a seagull and brings it out and gets some detergent water and cleans them off so they can save their lives. So I helped the guy, and, uh, and then I said, how many more are there? He said, oh, just follow this trail. So we went on back there, and suddenly we came to a large group. And, I mean, it was really a lot of people. And there was a huge pile of beer cans in the middle, probably went five foot high and six foot across. And here were guys who all they did all day long was if someone had money to buy beer, they bought beer and they just sat there. And I talked with each one of them. There was a welder. All of them had come from, at one time, a working-class, middle-class background, and they were, they were happy. But after they went to war, and most of these guys went to war after 9-11 because of, they felt it was their patriotic duty, each and every one of them. And uh, they're not, they didn't go to murder anybody. They went there to, because they believed that the, the terrorists attacked us would attack us again. And so the whole motto back then was deal with them over there so we don't have to deal with them here. So those are not people who are you know, filled with rage and just want to go kill someone. They have a, they, as I told them, I'm against the wars that you fought in, but I'm not against you. And so I listened to their stories all day long and each day. And I met more and more and more. And how many of them were there? Homeless vets in, in, in northeast Florida in the woods? 16,000. In fact, during that same week, there was called a stand-down. And a stand-down is where you go to get supplies. These are donated by organizations, and, and, by, and the people manning it are all uh, former soldiers who volunteer their time. And I set the camera up on this street at 5 o'clock in the morning, and it was very, very uh, misty. You couldn't see anything, and you couldn't hear anything. So we're standing there for about an hour, and I, I turned to the camera guy, and I said, are you sure we're at the right address? And he looked, and he said, yeah, we're, we're at the right address. I said, that's strange. And then as at 7 o'clock, as the mist began to part, they said they opened the, the gates, and as it, there must have been a two-mile long of all these vets standing there quietly. They had been there for hours, didn't hear a word from them. And it was very quiet inside. There was a barber who would cut, you know, cut your hair. There was a portable shower where you could take a shower. There was a church that had a, uh, were giving out bags of food. There was a table with boots so you could get some boots. And another one was giving sleeping bags. So these guys had nothing. In fact, there was one young guy there who came in. Now, this is in February, and it's about 40 degrees out. It's cold. This is northern Florida, not southern Florida. And he had just a T-shirt. I said, uh, I said, do you have any clothes? He said, no, this is all I have. I said, where have you been sleeping? He said, well, I, I sleep, you know, at one of the uh, grounds with the vets. Where do you sleep? He said, well, I just, you know, wrap up in some newspaper and, and just a T-shirt. 
He says, that's all I have. That's how bad it was. In fact, he said that he would go out early in the morning and go up a street and in the backyard and pick an orange. He would only pick one item of fruit or a vegetable from each place so it wouldn't be noticed because that's all the food he had to eat. And then you start to realize the real face of suffering of people who believed what they were doing was the right thing and their government abandoned them, completely abandoned them. And then I went to Arizona in the desert and found more. In Los Angeles, under bridges, more. So everywhere I was looking in America until they've got the final totals, and we believe our totals are correct, and the official totals are grossly wrong, we believe there's over 900,000 homeless vets in the United States. The vast majority did not go to sign up because they were angry and wanted to hurt someone. And then we have to look at other battles where people went because it was a chance to get a college education, to get a career, to master something they could then bring out into civilian society and use that. Again, you have to look at what happens when a person's in a combat zone and then they go through trauma and then the the only treatment for that trauma is psychiatric drugs, which in themselves can create acute psychoses, suicidal tendencies. And please, uh, Harvey, remember that every day about 23 vets kill themselves. That means that more American veterans have killed themselves with their own hand than were killed in the entire Iraqi war or the Afghanistan war. That should put it in perspective. So... Before you make generalizations like that in the future, I just encourage you to think about pulling back so instead of emoting a condition response from your epigenetics, your conditioning, that you be reasonable and mindful in the moment because it was Bruce Lipton, professor at Stanford in the mid-'80s, who founded the whole field we now call epigenetics, that we are epa, larger, genetics, our environment that we're in, the people who are raising us, with how they deal with love, how they deal with anger, how they deal with jealousy, how they deal with resentment, how they deal with bonding, we absorb that. That becomes our truth until we can disengage it. And by the time we become an adult, and by the time we make enough mistakes and realize that, gee whiz, maybe that wasn't the way I should love or wasn't the right way to deal with something, we have hundreds of millions of wrong messages in our DNA. And it's only mindfulness, being mindfully aware, which is about 1% to 3% of our time and mindset each day, that allows us to go to that place where we can change, reflect upon the choices we've made, and then disengage from making those negative choices or reactive choices. Does that make sense to you, Harvey? Yes, it does, Gary. And I also wonder why the state is so abusive toward its soldiers, as you put it, the ones who rise up and want to defend our country. Uh, you know, there are several states where they took their food stamps away from able-bodied individuals with no, uh, no, um, no, with, uh, no children, and uh, a lot of those people were vets. So I'm wondering why is the state so abusive toward its heroes, people who would defend our country against the enemy, and... Um, one has to look back, I think, again, at the 
genetic code of trust, you know, whether the politicians who enact these things have themselves been abused, even though they're rich, maybe they were abandoned or somehow not Harvey, taken care tr- of themselves. Harvey, try to, try to separate out of where the, you are stating as if it were an intentional abuse, which I do not believe it is, rather it is the negative consequence to a system that the paradigm itself was misdirected, wrongfully constructed. If you start off with something that is wrong, then you're going to have consequences to that wrongness. And I believe that is more likely the outcome than anyone wanting to hurt anyone. Just deal with any bureaucracy and you'll get a better definition of that. Harvey, we're going to go. We have other calls. Thank you for calling from Berkeley, California. I'm Gary Knoll. You'd like to join, share your thoughts, your questions, your opinions, your insights. Please do so. This is Talk Back, our first program in five years. Call us at 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. We're going to take a music break and be right back. We'll go back over to Luann Panessi. And Luann, for people who may feel a little hesitant calling but would like to see that their question or issue is raised, tell them again how they can email you. They can email me at whnn at aol.com. That's whnn, like William, Harry, Nancy, Nancy, at aol.com. Good. And are you ready for your next question? Yes, I am. Okay. Very commonly, when people have chronic illnesses, our conventional doctors don't really look at the whole issue of heavy metal toxicity. And we've had many members of your audience who have emailed and said, you know, I just found out from a hair analysis or from a provoked urine test that I have heavy metals. Um, So their question is, what is the best way naturally to um, pull these heavy metals out of the body? The best way of getting heavy metals would be four items. First, starting off with three glasses of wheatgrass juice a day, two ounces. In that, you have the juice of one whole lemon, including the skin, and one ou- about one ounce of, of uh, ginger juice from a piece of ginger. That would be about a one-inch long piece of ginger. And that you have three times a day for the first week. Then in the second week, you go to four ounces. 
The third week you go to six ounces, and you hold it at six ounces. Only of the wheatgrass. The other two stay the same. But then at the end of one month, you add a teaspoon of chlorella and a teaspoon of spirulina, along with vitamin C at 1,000 milligrams, to that mixture. So now you're drinking this every day, and this is the best way of eliminating lead, cadmium, mercury from your body. And it purifies your, your DNA. It's terrific for you. Okay? That sounds great. Next Tastes question. terrible, but it's good for you. Yeah, well, listen, once I had a, a terrible uh, chest cold, and you had me juicing garlic and onions and drinking that straight. I'll never forget that. However, by the next day, the, the, head, the chest cold was gone. I mean, it was gone. So, yeah, it doesn't taste always delicious, but, you know, it works. Good. So, next question. Uh, here's, next question. This is a very interesting one. And I have a lot of people that, that have, uh, in, they're very curious about your exercise routine and, and things like that, how you're keeping yourself in shape. And one of the questions that keeps coming up is, you've won so many competitive races, either running or race walking. And the question is, why are you still racing? At your age. <laughs> well, first, my chronological, chronological age and my biological age are radically different. My biological age is very young. And as a result, the reason I stay fit and stay, you know what my percentage of body fat is. You took my impedance along yeah. with everyone else. What was it? 2.3. 2.3% body fat at 185 pounds, six, almost 6'2". So that means lean, strong muscles. But I wouldn't have those muscles if I weren't training. And in training, there's two types of training. There's long-distance training, where you're out there training for a marathon, and there's short-distance training, and then there's health training. And because I'm racing and uh, a lot, I'll train generally for anywhere from a 5K race, which is 3 miles, up to a 12-mile race, which is 20K. And that means that, A, you're creating good hormones. So you're starting your day feeling good. You've got endorphins. You're helping to flush toxins through the body. Or even if you don't have toxins, you're increasing your metabolism, which means you're more efficient in burning calories. So you're not going to end up with a pot belly. Also, when you're training yourself, you're saying, can I still do what I've done when I was 20, 25, or 30? And most people say no. Remember what I said about the very first program? Nobody ever got younger looking or acting when they graduated from high school where I came from? Yep. But that's, that's them. That was their truth. That was their reality. And they never believed that they could get younger. Well, I believe you can. I believe that you can do wonderful things later in life, and you shouldn't be limited. I believe our belief systems limit us. Other people's expectations of us limit us. But we shouldn't limit ourselves by expectations or previous experience. So by going out there and racing, you're not racing against the competition. You're racing against your previous limitation. And that is why I race. That's why I train. But you can't just 
train the legs or the lungs. You have to train your abs. You have to train your back muscles, your triceps, biceps, delts, pecs. So that means you have to engage the full body in exercising, hence the VersaClimber, running up steps. And then you alternate between running and brace walking. So you're giving one group of muscles a rest and that versus uh, the others that you're engaging. So you show me someone who's exercising five to six days a week, three to five miles a day, plus doing three to four days a week of resistance exercises, I'll show you someone who's going to add 10 to 15 years onto their lifespan, who'll be healthier, who will look younger, act younger, because the mindset that cares enough about itself to do something good is a mindset that will be happier. And the mindset that says, oh, look at it outside, it's so cold, it's so hot, it's so <laughs> rainy, I don't want to do any of that, I'm not sure. I, want to... I got to eat that pizza, I got to eat the hamburger, I don't want to go to the farmer's market, I don't want to eat that organic stuff, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. But when you end up having fatigue, when you can't get an erection, when you no longer are excited by life, when you start becoming the ultimate pessimist, where every conversation is, is groaning, moaning, and blaming someone or something instead of looking for solutions and being optimistic, there's a consequence to not exercising. Exercising is just as important as diet when it comes to longevity. Remember that, just as important. So we should be getting all of the people who get older to do more exercise, not less. All the advice we were given was wrong. Remember the advice, we'll stay in bed and heal. No, you know that we should be getting people up out of bed and getting them walking, even, even if they've had bone surgery much sooner because it, it, it causes greater uh, activation of the fibroblast cells, for example. Well, we shouldn't be sitting for longer than two hours at a time. We should get up and exercise our body. That's why I believe everyone at work should have some hand weights and every two hours you stand up for five minutes and you do some half squats and do curls at the same time. Five, 10, 20 pounds. So you're hitting all those muscles. You're burning fat. You're strengthening them. And so that's why I continue to race. It's not about winning. I've won over, I think, 500 races, set a lot of records. In fact, right now I'm, I'm second in the state uh, for most current records held. And that's wow. fine. That's fine. But there's nothing in the world that replaces knowing you can look in a mirror and be happy with what you see because you know you worked on it. And when you can look in the mirror and say, I like what I see because I worked on it, that requires discipline. It requires sacrifice. It requires making good choices and being happy with the choices you made. Because I can show you an awful lot of people who every day, they don't make positive choices. The only time they make any choices good is when they're forced to make it. And that's not a way to live. Yeah, so does that answer your question? It sure does. It sure does. Thank you for that. Okay. Do we have time for one more? Sure we do. Yeah, one more. Okay. All right, here's a, here's a one. Um, we just finished an amazing health support group with people all over the tri-state area, and we convened regularly for, 
from June through the end of September. So we got some amazing results coming up. And I've had a lot of people calling me and emailing me and asking me, well, what about those of us who live out of state, who live in California or Florida or Missouri or Ohio? Uh, what about us? Can, is there a way that we can see, we can get a health support group together, maybe online or something? And then, of course, also when you announce about the retreat, a lot of the times that the, the people are coming from the tri-state area and they ask the same question, how can we find out sooner about uh, Gary's retreat? We are going to, we have a brand new Progressive Radio Network website. In fact, we're expanding it daily. Some of the new features include having uh, the, the best lectures and workshops at our future retreats filmed bring in our professional film crew, and I will direct them. And so we will post those. So if you can't be there in person, at least many of the little gems that occur, you'll be able to download. That's new. Separately, for those who can't attend the health support groups, and most people can't, we had 500 people, we were packed, we are going to have it online as well. Our next health support group will actually be online. So anyone in the world who's listening, we have people all over the world listening right now, they can take the health support group. And with each health support group, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a, a, the conference call. So they can, as they're, they're getting their information, they can, they can text their questions, and we will set uh, upwards of an hour aside at the end of each class to address their questions. Now, that'll be on the new site because I couldn't do it on the old site. We didn't have all the, the setups, but now in the next week, all this will be up on the new site. You'll have, for example, we hired people who are getting the best progressive articles in the world every day by categories, women's issues, anti-aging issues, uh, gardening issues, um, corporatocracy, uh, corruption in government, uh, health and nutrition, environmental issues by categories. And it'll be cumulative, plus documentaries, progressive documentaries. Our goal is to have over 1,000 progressive documentaries in the next 12 months posted. So... You'll go to the main homepage of Progressive Radio Network, and that will then show you news, and you can go there and get all the news stories, progressive news stories from around the world, plus all the articles we've written and special reports, investigations, and there will also be a, uh, a button that says Health Support Group. It'll give you the dates, upcoming, all that will happen. So we are listening to what people are saying, and we're trying to accommodate them. Well, that's right. great. I, I think that's terrific. And I, we, I know members of your audience will be very happy to hear that. Yeah, we don't want to exclude. I could only imagine how frustrating it must feel for people who are not either financially in a position or, or strategically in a position in where they live to be able to attend some of these things. But this way now they will be connected. And also, great. give your email out again because next week at this time... We'll be doing another uh, talkback, and people can either call in or they can email during the week, and then we can select different, you know, you do the selecting, you select the ones you would like to see addressed on a wide variety of topics that can impact different people, and then we'll give, him, uh, give your email address. Yes, it's W-H-N-N, like William, Harry, Nancy, Nancy, W-H-N-N at AOL.com, W-H-N-N at AOL 
stands for America Online, AOL.com. And the, the questions that I pick are coming. If I get a lot of, of people asking kind of the same questions, those are the ones that, that I pick. That uh, Because I'm thinking that there's more people that want that kind of information or something that's going to be able to serve the whole community. I agree. But remember, we also want variety. We want yes. to hit hit the millennials. We want to hit seniors. We want to hit every kind of person to address the issues that are important in their life. Okay, and uh, so I want to thank everyone who tuned in tonight. I'm just now looking at the numbers. We got a lot of people listening, so hopefully this has helped you in different ways to stimulate thought, uh, to get you doing more homework and research for yourself. And uh, every day at noon, Monday to Friday. We're there to empower people. Thank you, everyone. Have a nice day.